Welcome to World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast, episode number 134. The Doughboy Podcast is about what happened a hundred years ago during and after the war that changed the world, and it's also about now. How World War I is still present in our daily lives, but most important, the podcast is about why and how we'll never let the awareness of World War I fall back into the mists of obscurity. On today's show, we're going to explore the birth of American philanthropy and how World War I established philanthropy as we think of it today. Joining us is David Rockefeller Jr., whose family helped set the foundation for American philanthropy. In Commission News, we talk about a major shift in focus for the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission. For Remembering Veterans, we're joined by Dr. Nancy Gentile Ford, who researched, wrote a book, and published a website about a fascinating and enlightened approach by the U.S. Army in World War I about cultural diversity. And of course, our walk through the headlines of The Dispatch, our newsletter guide to World War I-related stories, news, and updates. All this week on World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast. The podcast is sponsored and brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Doughboy Foundation, both dedicated to remembering those who served in World War I and to building the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. The term philanthropy comes from the Greek philanthropia. It translates as love of humankind. In 1913, just before the war broke out in Europe, a private charitable organization was formed to become one of the longest-running and largest philanthropic foundations in history, the Rockefeller Foundation. In 2013, on the centennial of the formation of the Rockefeller Foundation, they published a wonderful book called Beyond Charity, A Century of Philanthropic Innovations. A side note to our listeners, we have access to a free copy for you in the podcast notes if you'd like to read it. Early in the book, there's a great article called What Motivates Donors to Give? Certainly something we've been exploring deeply as we put our backs and shoulders into the final hurdles of raising the money to build the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C., So I thought that reading a piece of that article would make a wonderful setup for this week's show. Here's an excerpt from What Motivates Donors to Give. Philanthropy begins with a donor and some measure of surplus wealth from the coins in a child's piggy bank to the shares in a great corporation. And it begins with a donor's desire to give. Around the globe, and for many reasons, People give time and money to make the world a better place. One donor hears of an earthquake or a flood and is moved by empathy to make a quick contribution by text over his mobile phone. Vision and hard work enable an entrepreneur to build a fortune, inspiring a desire to give back to the community that made that fortune possible. Another individual spends a lifetime helping a charitable organization and leaves substantial portions of his or her estate to ensure that its work continues for generations. 
Behavioral psychologists, cognitive scientists, economists, and a range of other researchers have tried to explain why people give. Some believe that philanthropy is about what the donor wants, not what the others need. One person gives to cancer research hoping that he or she might be saved by the development of a cure. A fan of music or dance gives to make sure that the symphony or performance group that they enjoy will continue to perform. As some economists have discovered, however, the rational choice argument does not fully explain donor behavior. What motivates donors to give? A second group of researchers understand humans as moral beings. Quote, they enjoy doing what's right. They're also emotional, empathetic, and sympathetic. They enjoy gratitude and recognition. They enjoy making someone else happy. They feel relieved from guilt when they become a giver. From this point of view, philanthropy fulfills the expressive need of the donor. The warm glow from giving is an act of personal consumption. As economist James Andriani points out, this motivation explains why people make contributions to people in need that they don't even know. Okay, now with that as a setup, let's jump into our centennial time machine and explore the history of American philanthropy and especially its transformation by the war that changed the world. We've gone way back to the 1700s, as philanthropy was generally thought of as charity. For example, the need to assist the least fortunate of American colonists is met primarily by the churches. That continued to be true as the young nation evolved, and as cities developed, it included additional municipal assistance, or even private-public partnerships, often in the form of so-called poorhouses picking up the slack. Now, there's an argument about caring for the poor that will continue to be debated for centuries going forward. And that's the fear that giving charity to the poor only leads them to greater idleness. Fast forward. In 1727, Benjamin Franklin writes, I am for doing good to the poor, but I differ in opinion about the means. I think the best way of doing good to the poor is not making them easy in poverty, but leading or driving them out of it. His efforts are focused on increasing opportunities for the poor rather than providing short-term bailouts, a theme that sounds very familiar even in the 21st century. Fast forward to the mid-1860s. Philanthropic foundations begin to appear in the U.S. after the Civil War. One such story is that of Russell Sage. Now, he's known as a stingy man, but after he dies, his wife, Margaret Olivia Sage, sets out to give away her inheritance. Another early story of American philanthropy is that of Andrew Carnegie. He intends to give all of his money away before he dies, but there's just so much of it that the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching is established in 1905. Post-Civil War prosperity creates 40,000 millionaires in the U.S. by 1916. Among those wealthy individuals, there's a standout. 
John D. Rockefeller is widely considered the wealthiest American of all time, making his fortune by establishing the Standard Oil Company as the use of kerosene and oil is skyrocketing. In 1913, John D. Rockefeller and his son, John Jr., take philanthropy to a whole new level, establishing the Rockefeller Foundation, an organization with a huge vision to improve the well-being of mankind throughout the world. And just in time, as the world is about to plunge headlong into World War I, and philanthropic need to feed and care for desperate, non-combatant citizenries is about to become a genuine humanitarian imperative. An imperative of the war that changed the world. We have links for you in the podcast notes. So with that, let's fast forward back to the present. Now we're going to stay with our theme of American philanthropy as we explore how World War I has been and is being remembered and commemorated in the present. With us today is businessman and noted philanthropist David Rockefeller Jr., a fourth-generation son since John D. Rockefeller established the foundation. David and his wife Susan recently joined the World War I Centennial Commemoration at a very special event held at the Palace of Versailles on the anniversary of the peace treaty signing that ended World War I with Germany. David Rockefeller Jr. previously served as the chairman of the Rockefeller Foundation itself, including presiding over the organization during its centennial in 2013. But his interests are really diverse, including the arts. David Rockefeller is a life trustee at the Museum of Modern Art, having served there as a trustee for nearly four decades. He is a board member of the Asian Cultural Council, a fellow of the Academy of Arts and Sciences, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. His accolades and accomplishments just go on. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Teo. I'm glad to be with you today. Now, you know, for over 130 weeks, we've been exploring the many and oftentimes forgotten facets of World War I, but we haven't had a chance to talk about the role and the impact of your family, not on the war, but on the humanitarian relief during this cataclysmic global event. David, could you tell us about the genesis of the Rockefeller Foundation and how it got involved in World War I years before America did? Yes, well, of course, I wasn't around at that time, <laughs> but I did serve on the board of the Rockefeller Foundation for 10 years and half of that time as its chairman, so I became much more familiar with the history of the foundation which was founded in 1913, so as you say, before the war began. And it really was one of the first two major foundations, philanthropic foundations, formed in the U.S., along with the Carnegie Foundations. And early on, the then trustees, including my grandfather, John D. Rockefeller Jr., were very moved by the plight of humans in grave situations. And so it was not surprising that among the early actions of the foundation were to give relief, including with the Belgian refugees in 1914. So there was a very humane purpose for the foundation, really for the welfare of mankind around the world. 
in your career, you've been deeply involved in philanthropy and even more so historically. The Rockefeller Foundation essentially defined pretty much what modern philanthropy is. Could you talk about that a bit? Yes, I was fortunate enough, Teo, to be the chair of the foundation in its centennial year, 2013. And during that time, we had an opportunity to look back at our own history and produced actually five books on the history, different elements of the Rockefeller Foundation. And it really, of course, arose out of the fortune that John D. Rockefeller Sr. had amassed. And his son, as he was called Jr., persuaded his father that he ought to become involved as a philanthropist, and which Sr. was certainly willing to do and started one of the great foundations in the world, really, which still has an endowment value of more than $4 billion. So it was the father and son who began the foundation and gathered around them distinguished individuals in medicine and science and philosophy, etc., to be the other trustees. Well, with the foundation's role and through the years and the years after the war, your family has a genuinely unique relationship to World War I. So from that unique perspective, and obviously from your own personal view, why do you think it's important for America to remember World War I? Well, I think it's enormously important to draw lessons from any conflict in which we have been involved. As you well know, the U.S. is kind of schizophrenic about whether it wants to be involved beyond its own borders. At times, it's been very isolationist, and in both world wars, it took the U.S. quite a while to decide they wanted to engage in a conflict which was in a sense, principally about Europe. The other side of the U.S. is more of an expansive and engaged belief in the might of the United States and the justification of getting involved in wars in foreign lands. And luckily, in both cases, the U.S. government decided to commit its soldiers, its lives, and its technology to defeating the enemy in both cases involving Germany. And of course, history will show that it was a lucky thing that we did. Well, let me change gears a little bit. You've actually been involved in sitting on the boards of the Museum of Modern Art and some other things. So I'd want to address you as a person involved in the arts. I saw some pictures from the evening at Versailles where Sabin, in his unique animated style, and you are in front of the maquette, And he's clearly telling you the story about a soldier's journey, the main sculpture for the new National World War I Memorial. What do you think about that? Well, I've only seen the maquette, of course, because that's all that exists so far. But it looked like a very moving narrative sculpture where you looked from left to right and really saw the history of a soldier's engagement, multiple soldiers' engagement in World War I. And so I'm very optimistic that Sabin's work will be a great success when it's shown in full scale in Washington, D.C. David, at one point you sat as the citizen chair of the National Parks Foundation. What was that experience like for you? I had a very positive experience as the citizen chair of the National Park Foundation. In that role, I reported actually to several secretaries of the interior, and it was a great experience for me to combine my interest in philanthropy, in the environment, and in art. 
Well, one last question for you. From your own unique perspective, what do you think people should remember about America's role in World War I? I hope what people remember always is the horrible cost of war and the need in each situation to very, very carefully define what our interests are in getting into a war. And I heard General Colin Powell recently talk about his philosophy, which I share, which is enter a war as a last resort. But if you do enter, make sure that you're going to win it. Very good closing statement. Thank you so much, David. It was a great interview. Thanks very much. I appreciate it very much, Teo. Good to talk to you. We want to thank David Rockefeller Jr. for taking the time from his busy schedule to be with us today and for the great work both he and the Foundation have been doing for such a long time. As we mentioned at the top of the segment, we have links for you in the podcast notes to the book, A Century of Giving, and our other research notes. In commission news, the end of July was a big transformative week. You see, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission's charter to honor, educate, and commemorate the U.S. Centennial of World War I is essentially complete. In accordance with the law that created it on January 14, 2013, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission is now effectively standing down, except for one huge thing creating and building the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Now, that means that the commission is wrapping up many of its other programs and focusing exclusively on making the memorial. If you go to the commission's website at www.cc.org, you'll see it immediately on the home page. The memorial is now the focus. So, of course, information on the memorial will continue to be updated on the site, but also all the wonderful information that was generated and put together over the centennial by literally well over 100 people, like the War in the Sky timeline, the full collection of the official bulletin, the incomparable Wright blog, the estimated 10,000 articles and posts about World War I, the state centennial sites, and the special interest publishing partner websites that we nurtured and hosted. Now, they're all still at your fingertips. If you've never explored the site and you have any interest in World War I, and since you're listening to the podcast, you probably do, go to www.cc.org. Go to the search in the menu bar and type in anything related to World War I and see how much information pops up for you. It's a pretty astounding resource. With the giant transition just happening, it's apropos that today we're going to introduce you to the last new specialty World War I site that will be published, a final publishing partner site that was completed just before the focus shift. For remembering veterans, a new World War I special subject website is now available at www.cc.org. It's based on a book titled Americans All, Foreign Soldiers in World War I. Let me set this up with the opening statement from the site. Immigrants have served in every American conflict since the Revolutionary War. However, World War I represented the first time military forces were so ethnically diverse and foreign-born soldiers served in such large numbers. Between 1880 and 1920, a short 40 years, over 23 million people primarily from Southern and Eastern Europe, immigrated to the United States. 
During the Great War, almost one in five immigrants became a soldier in the United States Army, representing some 46 nationalities. Now, if you ever doubted the true immigrant nature of the American melting pot, World War I is certainly a testament to it and its strength. With us today is the author of that book, Dr. Nancy Gentile Ford, a professor at Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania, where she teaches 20th century American military, cultural, and political history. Three of her books include The Great War in America, Civil-Military Relations During World War I, and Issues of War and Peace, and our subject today, Americans All, Foreign-Born Soldiers in World War I. Hi, Theo. Well, welcome to the show, and let me start with my first question. Before we get into the translation of your book into a website, let me ask you a little bit about the subject of the book. Not only was this the most culturally diverse army in our nation's history, but the darn thing effectively came together in under a year. Can you talk a bit about what happened? Sure. First of all, I argue in my book that immigrant leaders in the ethnic communities assisted the War Department in various ways to train and teach English to foreign-born soldiers. And so they helped also stimulate American patriotism. At the same time, they pushed for respect for the cultural traditions of the immigrants. And the War Department also was really interested at this time in morale. This is the first time we have a military morale section under the Military Intelligence Division. And they really wanted to keep the morale up of soldiers. And so I argue that the reason that the military, the War Department, chose to respect ethnic traditions of soldiers, the religion, their culture, etc., was because they wanted an effective army and they wanted to keep the morale up of the soldiers. The American Army of 1917 was overall generally unprepared for a foreign war, much less all the foreigners in the army. How did they deal with this? How did they deal with the culture and language barriers specifically? Underneath the military morale section, they started the foreign speaking soldier subsection. And this subsection then hired a well-known educated Polish soldier named Stanislaw Godowski. He was a lieutenant in the army. He spoke various languages. And he organized a team of soldiers that were well-educated. They were doctors, lawyers, businessmen, things, editors of ethnic newspapers. And this team that spoke multiple languages then went into Camp Gordon. They started there in Camp Gordon, Georgia. And they reorganized these soldiers into ethnic-specific units. So you'd have a Jewish company and you would have an Italian company, Czech, Slovak company, things like that. And at first, they were going to give them translators so that a bilingual Anglo-Saxon American would be the officer, which was typical of the officer corps back then. But there's a problem with that. If you're in war and you have to have an interpreter or translator, it's going to be a problem. So the War Department did something amazing. They actually promoted the leaders of ethnic communities that had been drafted as officers and sent them to officer training school. We have now an openness to cultural diversity, but not to racial diversity. So if you had a foreign culture that happened to not be Caucasian-ish based, then that was a different concept. Exactly. And Jennifer Keene out in Chaplin University has done some extensive work on this. And she concludes that at first, the War Department was open to a little bit more change, not as much as you see with the immigrants. 
but it was actually the Southerners who objected to integration of the military or even training African-American soldiers as combat soldiers. And so most of them served in service positions. So yes, there was a big difference between immigrants being more accepted in the military than African-Americans. But if you look at congressional records, you can really see some pretty terrible comments by Southern congressmen about not wanting to train African-Americans as combatants. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about the Commission on Training Camp Activities that popped out? Sure. So Newton Baker, who was the Secretary of War, he had been a progressive reformer before he became the Secretary of War. And as a progressive reformer, he and others believed that instead of going after crime and vice, like prostitution and gambling, etc., They would provide alternative activities, clean up the cities, put in parks, put in baseball fields, promote other activities, and really deal with the problems of the poor. And in this case, a lot of the poor were immigrants at this time. So when he brought the same philosophy, this progressive era philosophy, into the army, he and Raymond Fossick, the commissioner of training camp activities, They both were trained that way. And so they said, well, let's make sure that the army stays clean as well. So there was no cure for VD back then. And so VD could cripple an army. And so they promoted a lot of propaganda to say, you know, stay away from prostitutes, et cetera. And they had these ethnic leaders who were well-educated and they translated the materials on VD and other social moral uplifting brochures into various languages. They had sports and music and theaters and libraries, and they had hostess huts. And at first, they just had the YMCA. And you'd go to the hostess hut, you could write home, listen to music, read books, read newspapers. And what the Committee and Training Camps activities did was they brought in the Knights of Columbus, which is a Catholic organization, and the Jewish Welfare Board. They actually had their own hostess huts. They could go to the YMC if they want, but the hostess huts had foreign language books. It had foreign language newspapers. And that's where their religious services were held as well. Fascinating. Oh, well, let me ask you about your motivation for doing this book. Writing the book, it was like going from absolutely no knowledge into trying to look at thousands of documents and trying to figure out what's going on. Immigrants have served in every conflict we've been in. And I thought this was another way of educating the public about the importance of respect for immigrants and respect for their contributions in America. The reason that I wanted to do this was because I teach research and writing, which is our capstone history course at Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania. And I thought this would really be good to teach students how to do research. They could look at a summary of my chapters, and then they could see the primary sources that I use and understand how you analyze primary sources. So they would go through the same process that I went through. Of course, I made it easier for them, but that I went through, you know, trying to see how you analyze documents and come to conclusions. On the website, you had a chance to do something that I don't think you did in the book, which is to publish the primary sources to the readers. Right, exactly. So what happened was my university really emphasizes professor-student collaboration in research. And when Chris Christie asked me to do this, I thought, this is an excellent student-professor project. And I selected Justin Sharp. He was an outstanding history major, and he was very, very good with computers. And I am technologically impaired, so I needed somebody that was good with computers. 
And so he had these five totes that were just full of information. So he read my book, he organized the primary sources for each chapter, and then he summarized each chapter. And then I went in and kind of rewrote, edited, added things to the summary of the chapters. And then I selected the primary sources and scanned them. And then Justin, who's a webmaster, actually built the website then. For most people who get involved with World War One projects, this is really common for guests that we have on the show. Something they learn or experience they have as a result completely surprises them or stands out for them. How would you characterize that on this project? Not only was I surprised about how the military respected the cultural traditions and religion of the foreign barn, I could just give you some details that really may surprise you. For instance, the Polish soldiers wanted to say their confessions before they were shipped overseas to the AEF, but they wanted Polish Catholic priests. The War Department went out of their way getting Polish Catholic priests to the camps where the Polish soldiers were to hear their confession. The Jewish Welfare Board asked for matzo bread for soldiers during Passover. So I actually conclude that all of this allowed the immigrants and the soldiers to develop a dual identity, pride in being from their adopted country and fighting for their adopted country, but also pride in their individual ethnic group. And I think that's extremely unusual, and I was not expecting to find that. What should our listeners remember about this and the Americans in uniform during World War I? Well, again, I think their contribution speaks for itself. And this is from Oscar Hanlon in the book Uprooted, which he wrote in 1951. And he said, and I'm quoting, Once I thought to write the history of immigrants in America, then I discovered that the immigrants were American history. And I think that sums up the whole immigrant experience and sums up their experience in the United States military. Thank you for both taking the time to join us today. But more than that, thank you for sharing your knowledge and your insight about the subject and you and Justin both for building the website because that goes on in perpetuity. Yeah, and we can thank Justin for the website. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Dr. Nancy Gentile Ford, educator, researcher, and author, and Justin Sharp, web builder and cyber instructor, are the creators of Americans All, foreign-born soldiers in World War I, a website that you can find at www.cc.org forward slash Americans, all lowercase. You can find Dr. Ford's book of the same name on Amazon. We have links for both in the podcast notes. And that brings us to articles and posts, where we select stories that you'll find in our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. The Dispatch points to online articles with summary paragraphs and links, providing a rich resource to World War I news and activities. Our first story. Chicago Community Guardsmen Rededicate World War I Monument. A number of dignitaries and organizations took part in the rededication of the monument honoring the World War I service of the Illinois National Guard's storied All-African-American 8th Infantry Regiment. Read more about the event and the legacy of valor that the regiment blazed across three wars in American service. The project was an awardee of the 100 Cities 100 Memorials Program that provided matching grants for local World War I memorials. Next story. I wouldn't trade the incredible time I've had with this team for anything. 
As the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission shifts its mission to focus exclusively on the construction of the new National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C., there's also a shift in staffing. Among those who will sadly depart the commission's team is long-term Director of Public Affairs Chris Islieb. Chris has been with the Commission on Long-Term Loan from the U.S. National Archives, and he returned back to the archives full-time on the 1st of August. One of Chris's many contributions was a trademark style for multi-question interviews via email with a wide variety of individuals inside, outside, and around the Commission and across the world. Chris took the opportunity to interview one more important person about his tenure and his personal experience as a part of the Centennial Commission team, himself. Par Sundstrom, I know we make people search and dig deeper. World War I Centennial Commission intern Joshua Haynes conducted an interview with Par Sundstrom, the lead bassist for Sabaton, a Swedish power metal band that focuses on writing songs about military history. They've just completed their most recent album. It's called The Great War, which explores various themes and events from World War I. Clearly, this album means a lot to Parr and the rest of the Sabaton band, as well as their fans. The band takes great pride in its ability to combine the value of history with the thrill of heavy metal, developing a strong fan base across the world. The next article, Walker Jago of Denton, Texas, was one of America's first fighter pilots. Walker Jago's passion for aviation began in 1910 when he was only 14 years old. He and fellow Denton high school student Robert Story built a biplane glider in Jago's backyard. Joining the Army in 1917, Jago was among America's first group of pilots in the 135th Aero Squadron, nicknamed the Liberty Squadron. He flew alongside celebrated pilots like Eddie Rickenbacker. Read the story of the Texas native who flew to amazing heights in World War I. Hundred-year-old stained glass window honors Bristol, Virginia World War I soldiers. An antique window that can only be fully appreciated from inside the Washington County Courthouse in Bristol, Virginia, was installed a century ago in honor of local soldiers who fought in World War I. In March 1919, the Washington County Board of Supervisors approved the manufacture and installation of a one-of-a-kind window to honor the service of local soldiers. Read more about the remarkable window created as, quote, a tribute to our boys who left the country for the recent war and to the ladies who did their bit to make the world safe for democracy. Access the full-length versions of all these amazing stories and more through the summary paragraphs and links that you'll find in our weekly dispatch newsletter. It's our short and easy guide to lots of World War I news and information. Subscribe to this wonderful free weekly guide at www.cc.org forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that wraps up episode number 134 of the award-winning World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our great guests, talented crew, and our supporters, including David Rockefeller Jr. and Dr. Nancy Gentile Ford. Thanks to Dave Kramer for research and writing. Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team. Juliet Kowal, the line producer for the show. J.L. Michaud for web support. And I'm Teo Mayer your producer and host.
the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was authorized by the U.S. Congress in early 2013 to honor, commemorate, and educate the nation about World War I on the occasion of the centennial of the war. For over a half a decade, the commission, the commissioners, the staff, and supporters have labored to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. We've brought the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators, their classrooms, and to the public. We've helped to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. Now, as the Commission's charter to honor, educate, and commemorate the centennial of World War I has been successfully accomplished, the full focus of the Commission is turning to its capstone mission, to build a national World War I memorial in Washington, D.C., that after a century of being MIA in the nation's capital, will finally stand in this important international nexus to honor the memory and sacrifice of the men and women who served this nation during those transformative years of World War I. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the major contribution of the Star Foundation. We'd also like to thank our podcast sponsors, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Doughboy Foundation. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.1cc.org forward slash cn. You'll find World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy podcast, in all the places that you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, or Radio On Demand, even on YouTube, asking Siri or your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget, we need your help to keep the story alive for America. Please contribute to the memorial, which will stand to tell the story for generations to come. Just text the letters WWI or WW1 to the phone number 91999 and make a contribution of any size. Thanks for listening. So long.